Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this is the fourth of five in our sermon series for Advent and Christmas Eve, where we've been examining the various scripture texts selected by lyricist Charles Jennings for Handel's Oratorio Messiah. Now, we saw how he chose Isaiah chapter 40 for his first text, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, because of how Isaiah unmasks the real problem. It's not their bondage under the king of Babylon, but their bondage to sin. It's from this slavery, this slavery of sin, that there will come a deliverer, the servant of the Lord. This is the consolation of Israel, Isaiah says. So whatever may lie ahead of you as a believer, as one of God's faithful people, his ultimate purpose is your redemption. Now we also saw how Jennings next chose Isaiah 7 as part one's turning point. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now Jennings chose this text because of the context. It reminds the listener that there are two ways to live, God's way or your way. The context being the dilemma of the unbelieving King Ahaz of Judah. He had a choice of two evils, invasion and overthrow by former allies, or invasion and servitude as the client king of the new Assyrian Empire. But Isaiah offers him an other alternative. Forswear all alliances, both military and political. Forego your scheming and thinking to find a solution. Instead, trust wholly in the Lord. It's the verse that introduces the prophecy of Emmanuel. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, there is only one rock, one secure foothold, God's faithful promise. Isaiah presses Ahaz in this way, reminding him of God's covenant faithfulness to the people from the time of Abraham, indeed, from the time of the garden, reminding our first parents that a redeemer would come from the woman's seed. It's this, he tells the king, that requires faith, a living faith that will push you to renounce all these alternatives, all these differing worldly Security. So he presses that question on the king, and Jennings therefore presses that on the audience of the oratorio. In whom will you put your faith? Will it be in yourself, in this world, or will it be in the servant of the Lord, promised by Isaiah, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Uh, last Sunday, we saw how Jennings chose Malachi chapter 2 as the spiritual physician of the people. God's people had ignored God's words, and with the consequence, their lives were getting further and further away from God's will. Instead, they do the false conclusion in what they observed rather than in what God's word actually said. What they saw is that, well, the wicked weren't judged or punished. Therefore, God must somehow favor them because they prosper so. Where is this God of justice that we were promised? Their great mistake was they saw God meeting their expectation and their timetable. They ignored the fact, again and again proven in the Old Testament scripture, that God delays, not from indifference, but because of his mercy. He wants to give people time to repent. He delays in rewarding his saints, not from cruelty or miserliness, but to refine us to show us how our trust is vindicated in heavenly glory. So Malachi concludes, they're asking, why does God not act? God says to you, are you ready for my coming? The evidence, Malachi points out, says otherwise. They treat others badly. They practice sorcery, commit adultery, bear false witness, pay unfair wages. They do not provide for widows or orphans, the outsider or the refugee. We can see then why Jennings chooses Malachi's spiritual doctrine. We may wonder ourselves at God's patience with evil people. But of course, we don't look very closely at our own lives. We praise him for his patience with ourselves. That's why the soloist sings in the oratorio, Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like the refiner's fire. Now, Jennings continues now with Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, through chapter 9, verse 5. What we've just heard of the spiritual condition of the people in Malachi's prophecy is grown ever deeper and ever darker. But instead, now, the faithful receive the consolation of Israel at last. The people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them the light shined. The focus turns now from the overall condition of the people laboring under the judgment of God not ready for his appearing. The schemes of the nations come to nothing because they stem from the fear that human beings have one for the other. 
The Lord cannot be ignored. How you respond is how he will come to you. Will it be as your judge or will it be as your savior? For the rest of our time together this evening and Christmas Eve, we are focused now on the believer. Faithful Zion, the remnant people, Isaiah, and those gathered round him that have been charted across the history of the Old Testament and into the New, all the way to you and me here this evening in the year 2019. We are told here that we are to fear the Lord alone. We've chosen rightly, but we must never cease to be vigilant. Keep your focus on the Lord, because the alternative of human schemes will always be a temptation to you. It's true, isn't it? For all of us, when we've come to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we live our lives day in and day out, oh my, where is God today? And we're tempted to merely look at the world the way others do. It takes time, discipline. Indeed, the word disciple and discipline have the same root, don't they? It takes time for us to train ourselves in such a way through the perfect word of God to understand the great contrast between who we are in Christ and the world around us that we will not know fully until his second appearing. Here in Isaiah, we see this contrast of a deep darkness and a piercing dawn. Now, how are we to understand what Isaiah is doing here from verse 16 in chapter 8 to the end of that chapter? How are we to understand what happens next? I think Isaiah, like all of us, who care for the world around us and those who do not know Christ for themselves, is conflicted. In the same way that an actor on the stage may turn to his audience to deliberate out loud what he's thinking, what he's feeling, Isaiah does the same thing here. You see it in the shift from persons in the verbs in verses 16 through 19. I will wait for the Lord. After addressing someone who appears to be a servant, perhaps a scribe, in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And speaking to the people then directly in verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Now, do you see what's going on here? The conflict and the turmoil that is the reality of the Christian life and the life of every believer. Those who are lost, those who reject the clear message brought from God, their lives become ever darker. 
Here, the example is, is they are lost in the occult. There's an urgency here that comes as we see the pitiable state of those around us. He must communicate to his followers and therefore to us as well. These people, you must not cease to pray for them. You must not cease to speak Christ to them because they need the promise of the gospel even as much as you do and now especially as the darkness closes in around them. You also need to communicate it clearly to those of believers so that they can communicate it to the future generation. Because perhaps in that generation there will be more who are willing to hear of the light of Christ. Now notice how Isaiah's hope in this gathering darkness is not grounded in any circumstance of history, any political leader, but in the Lord God Almighty. Even the disciples may fail to live up to the hopes Isaiah has for them, but the Lord himself will never fail. The Lord will not let Isaiah down. We can see here that great biblical principle of the visible household of God, where there is a division between the faithful and the unfaithful. In the church, there can be those who come and merely experience the worship externally. And there are those who respond to the word of God internally, effectively change because of it. The difference between obedient faith and those who have no understanding at all. There is always a great danger here, isn't it? An apathy to the gospel can in time bring about a denial of the gospel. My dear friends, there is such a great difference between formality and show and actuality and reality. There's a profound difference between mere participation in the externals without a heart response, which alone can make those externals full of meaning, full of power and energy and joy. We studied our sermon to the Hebrews. We, we learned how that original company that came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude. There were those whose true heart condition was soon exposed by the testing rigors of the wilderness. And so they died, Hebrews 4 tells us, never entering the land of promise. In the parable of the sower, the Lord Jesus himself also warned about those who have no root, last only a short time. What do we learn here? We learn the focus remains on our Heavenly Father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the difference between the true and the false is so very hard to discern, isn't it? To the untrained eye, 
The immature eye, wheat and tear, sheep and goats can look very much alike. But through the clear glass of God's word, we begin to see the differences clearly. We understand then the nature of God's patience with us, his delay through testing, so that the reality of what resides within us by the power of the Spirit shines forth all the more clearly, distinguishing one from the other. The great takeaway must be in the way in which Jennings uses this text is that we cannot afford to take any of this casually. The line that was drawn in Isaiah's day is still being drawn today. The same ultimate issues are still at stake. Indeed, my dear friends, on Christmas Eve, when we come to the Lord's table, we'll hear once again that exhortation. A quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, is quoted to you. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? You see, my dear friends, the scriptures always urge us to examine ourselves, to see where we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't afford not to do so. But Isaiah does not leave us there, but the contrast now opens fully in chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Who's her? It's faithful Zion, my dear friends. It's you and me. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The fearful gloom has now become no more gloom. way out is to trust in the Lord. Isaiah's gaze is fixed steadfastly there on things to come, the time of fulfillment. By faith, he sees this great reversal that will be put into effect by the grace and mercy of God, destruction, the land and ruins of his day yields to a great glory. A new dawn will break where the judgment of God fell first in northern Israel. It's there in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, that the great armies of Assyria first marched, burning and destroying everything in their path. It's from here, from northern Israel, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, with their mixed populations that the Assyrians originally established in Isaiah's day, that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, first proclaimed the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's that message that is the great light that shines at 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The people are of both north and south, a single people brought under the rule of a single promised king of the house of David, Faithful Zion, the stump of Jesse, the shoot has grown fully and is now out and about. The walking in darkness is at an end. The daily darkness that they saw around them, the hard-heartedness, the ignorance, the distress, the misery, fear, all fruit of the sinful fallen world in which we must struggle every day. In Isaiah's day, imperial Assyria had only exposed what was the darkness in people's hearts and minds as they scrambled to save themselves and abandoned friend and family behind to the sword of the triumphant soldier. Far deeper, Isaiah tells us, from any darkness brought about by invasion or a loss of freedom, an uncertain future is the plight of sin itself and the misery it brings to our lives. It's to these people, the faithful remnant, the stump of faithful Zion, that the great light shines. But notice, Isaiah never sees it. But it was so vivid so real to him. How can this be? My dear friends, it is through the unction of the Holy Spirit which each of us receives when we come to Christ. In time, our hearts are there fixed by his work in us. It becomes so real to the prophet that he wrote as if it had already come. Indeed, my dear friends, do we not ourselves In living the Christian life, live as though the kingdom of God is fully realized in us and in our lives. So we surrender all to him, the financial gain which we receive, the relationships that we have, the forgiveness that we bestow upon those who wrong us. We do this because we know the day of vindication has dawned. In the place of walking every day in the shadow of death, we, in Christ, replaces it with a light of eternal life and a peace the world cannot give us. In place of the darkness of ignorance, the light of knowledge and understanding what God's purpose truly is. And in place of the darkness of sin where every relationship will fail us. If not through betrayal and gossip, eventually one of us will look at the other in the casket. Indeed, all those relationships will fail us. The darkness of sin is replaced by the light of salvation. It is only the light Jesus Christ, 
who is able to bring eternal life and peace to light. This is the light of Christ, who raised in Nazareth, went south to minister in the Galilee of the Gentiles, the gift of God. It cannot come spontaneously from the human heart which is in darkness. It must come externally as the person surrenders all and trusts in the promises of God made real in Christ. The whole work of Christ and all the gifts he brings are given to us by adoption in him and can be gathered together in the world in which we live by that simple word, light. What does Isaiah do in verses 3 to 4? He worships. He worships the source of the light. He praised God for his fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. I made you a great nation, a nation of faithful children. Therefore, the addition of the Gentiles, the people are even greater in number. And as it enlarges, his joy of God's mercy and grace only increases. It energizes the prophet who compares it metaphorically to the joy of a huge grain harvest or the joy of victors made wealthy in the spoil of war. The salvation of one sinner brings joy in heaven. And should it not do the same for us in Christ's church here on earth? The thing is simple. Joy is God's gift because only God saves. Therefore, his work in salvation must bring his people joy. This kind of rejoicing realizes our purpose in Adam's creation. We are to enjoy God forever. The conquest the overthrow of this deep darkness of sin and death will be final and absolute. Isaiah, in his worship, recalls God's word and account in the book of Judges. The victory over Midian that God brought about through Gideon, the judge, where human strength failed and countless soldiers are sent home with only 300. He was able to overwhelm and destroy a huge host of those who sought to oppress the people of God. Gideon only had to realize that the battle was the Lord's, to be won only by his power and his strength. Indeed, my dear friends, is that not for us the same? For the battle won for every believer against sin is a similar victory because it was won over an enemy against whom we were powerless. But God sent Emmanuel, who won that victory for us, so that we, with Isaiah, may worship him truly this Christmas tide. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. 
There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.